So I hope that everybody is staying self- safe. I hope everybody's staying safe and healthy during this coronavirus outbreak. And if you're stuck at home, just, you know, you can always listen to all of our past episodes and catch up if you're bored. Absolutely. <laughs> need something to do. Follow us on Instagram. Yeah. Facebook and Twitter. We'll post updates so that you guys feel a little less alone while we're all social distancing right. from each other. You've always been a social distancer. This is my dream. Yeah. This is... <laughs> You're, to not, be, you're not one for crowds. To be forced to stay home is probably the best thing that anybody can do to me. Not even necessarily staying home, just avoiding people. Yeah, yeah. You're an introvert. Absolutely. Yeah. So this week's presidential quiz question is, who was our smallest president? Smallest president. Smallest. Yeah. Shortest and lightest. Yeah. Yeah. Is that two different people or is it one in the it's same? It's one person. Yeah. So... The answer will be at the end of this episode. Nice. Stay tuned. Any updates before we get into it this week? Oh, not this not this week. Okay. Um thanks for everybody that liked and shared the Facebook posts. Hopefully you've gotten your free sticker by now. Yep. So keep your eyes out. We might do something like that again or Post a discount code for the the store. So everybody can at least do some shopping from the safety of their homes. Right. <laughs> Get some new merch. Yep. And all the merchandise is direct shipped to you from the manufacturer, so. Yep. All right. In 1854, Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which legalized slavery in territory that had previously banned slavery during the Missouri Compromise. This led to an anti-slavery coalition creating a new political party named the Republican Party. The goal of the party was not to abolish slavery right away, but to instead stop its expansion. The creation of this party helped revive the political career of Abraham Lincoln, who eventually claimed the presidency. Abraham Lincoln hated slavery and saw it as immoral, but also didn't believe that the Constitution gave the government the power to abolish slavery. In his inaugural address, Lincoln said that he had no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with slavery in the states where it exists. So when the Civil War broke out, Lincoln's main goal was to preserve the Union, not to free the slaves. But it started to become clear that the South was going to win the war at first. They had pushed the Mason-Dixie line all the way up to Pennsylvania, and the Union needed a serious boost if they were going to win. On January 1st, 1863, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation that announced that all slaves in the seceded South were now considered free by the Union. So this is something, the Emancipation Proclamation actually only freed slaves that were were in the southern states that had seceded. So those border states that Mm -hmm. stayed part of the Union, if they had slaves, they were still They were allowed to, yeah keep those they slaves. They were still indentured. Right. So those slave those uh slaves didn't um get emancipated until after the Civil War, where Congress and Abraham Lincoln together decided that it was time to end slavery, end slavery. once and for all in America. Huh. So but when he did uh issue the Emancipation Proclamation, um from that time till the end of the Civil War Almost 200,000 black Americans enlisted with the Union Army, 
and helped defeat the Confederacy. So not only did the Confederacy lose to the Union, they lost to black soldiers who used to be their slaves. And so this created, you know, even a greater hatred towards now free black Americans by Southern whites. In the late 1800s, Wilmington, North Carolina became the model of what the new South could be after the Civil War. At the time, it was the largest city of North Carolina, and the majority of the population was black. Regardless of your race or class, you had the opportunity to make a good living for yourself. Wages in Wilmington for both black and white Americans were higher than anywhere in the state. Black Americans owned several businesses in the town, all the way from real estate to doctors, teachers, lawyers, everything. Right. Almost all of the restaurants in Wilmington were owned by black Americans, and there were black Americans on the police force and fire department. Wilmington was seen as a mecca for the newly emancipated black population in the South, and many moved there from the rural areas because they could get good jobs and be part of a great community that was doing well for themselves. So it's just, you know, like, they're free, and almost immediately um, the black population takes advantage of their freedom, and, you know, they start moving up in society and own land and businesses and are doing well for themselves. The entrepreneurial spirit. Right. If you walk down the street in Wilmington in the 1890s, you would see alternating black-owned shops and white-owned shops. Black and white Americans were working alongside each other and with each other, socially interacting and getting involved romantically as well. An interracial couple started popping up in Wilmington. You know, because you start hanging out socially, then somebody's going to start crushing on somebody else and it just kind of escalates from there. Yep. So during this, biology. Yeah. So during this time, the Republican Party, which in North Carolina consisted largely of black Americans, and the Populist Party, that largely consisted of white farmers, they joined to create the Fusion Party. This joining of parties allowed for black Americans to be elected to several roles in the city all the way up to the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. Mm. The 1889 North Carolina House of Representatives had 11 black representatives, and North Carolina sent four black Republicans to the U.S. Senate between 1875 and 1899. Wow. The Fusionist Coalition swept the elections of North Carolina in 1894 and 1896. Black Americans finally had proper representation in politics and had a voice in politics from the local level all the way up to the national level. Now, this is still the South, though, only 30 years after the Civil War, And there are several ex-Confederate soldiers that returned to Wilmington and got involved with Democratic politics. At the time, the Democratic Party in the South was completely white. There were no black Democrats. There was no federal or state law that stated that these men, who had owned slaves and fought against the Union, were banned from participating in politics. And so they were allowed to be elected to seats of power. And that was kind of one of the major things that a lot of Republicans had issue with when it came to Reconstruction, is that we're going to let these people who wanted to leave the Union and, you know, were politicians in, like, the Confederacy, we're going to allow them to now be, hold seats of power in back in the Union. Right. So. The one that they just tried to usurp. Right. 
So many, uh, many of the ex-Confederates in political power encouraged talks of white supremacy and wanted to put an end to the influence or power that black Americans had in the South. Edward A. Johnson, the alderman of Raleigh, North Carolina, said of Wilmington, Negroes in Wilmington had pianos, expensive carpets, lace curtains at windows. White supremacy orators of that city constantly asked from the platform, how many of you white men can afford to have pianos and servants? Mm-hmm. So, kind of creating a... Hate and discontent. Yeah, a social divide. Yeah. When the fusionist coalition swept the elections in 1894 and 1896, the Democratic, the Democratic Party was basically out of power in North Carolina. And so the white government union was created in 1897 by the North Carolina Democratic Party. Jeez. The North, <laughs> yeah. The North Carolina Democratic Party printed and handed out pamphlets that described the constitution and bylaws of the, of the union that stated how members were to report and how they were to organize and how their goal was to install a white supremacist government in North Carolina. Like uh-huh. they weren't being secretive. About, about it at all. They literally printed it in brochures and handed it out to people in, in the streets. Hmm. They had a plan to terrorize populace and break up the Fusion Party so that they could get more Democrats elected to power in North Carolina. In the pamphlet that they handed out, it stated, It is no fault of the Negro that he is here, and he is not to be punished for being here. But this is a white man's country, and white men must control and govern it. My uh, southern accent comes in handy. Comes in in handy. (laughs) Wilmington attorney William Barry McCoy was the first executive chairman of the union. McCoy was also the prosecutor for New Hanover County and the chairman of the New Hanover County Board of Elections, along with being a member of several other social and political organizations in New Hanover County. So he's high up politically. Mm -hmm. With McCoy in charge, the white government union set out on creating their own militia that they named the Red Shirts that would carry out the dirty work for the union. They were very much like the Ku Klux Klan, except that they wore red shirts, hence the name. They did not cover their faces, and they committed their acts in broad daylight. Wow. The Red Shirt militia started burning down businesses of prominent black Americans in the community. When election day would arrive, the red shirt militia would post up in front of polling places and threaten any black Americans that wanted to vote with violence, even death. So mm. now black Americans are like, is it worth it to even go vote? Because I might die. Good shot. Rebecca Latimer Felton became the first female U.S. senator during a special election after Senator Thomas Watson died. She only served one day in the Senate. She was. It was more of a... Uh, Honorary position? Yeah. But, huh. So he must have died and then... So, yeah, so this was for Georgia. Mm-hmm. He died and she, like, took over in a special election. I don't know. It's a whole complicated thing that would take a whole nother... Episode. Episode. But anyways, she's comes to prominence because she becomes the first woman U.S. senator, mm-hmm. which is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um... So she uses her new national platform to give speeches and write columns in newspapers. She gave a speech that she titled Women on the Farm, where she described how white women who were working on farms with African Americans were not being protected by white men, and black men were just raping in the the fields at will. What? Yeah. So, you know, just some 
good old racist propaganda. Yeah. Like all these white men, women just being raped by black men and constantly. Yeah. So Rebecca's proposal was, if it takes lynching a black man a day to protect white womanhood, I say lynch. Wow. And she w- continued to say that even if they lynched 1,000 black men a day, it wouldn't be enough. So the first woman, U.S. Senator, is a, is a terrible person. You win some, you lose. Yeah. It's just, it's just disappointing. It is very disappointing. So disappointing. You get progress, and then that's and it just it has to be to a be. terrible person. Yeah. yeah. So her speech was then printed as an article in the newspaper, The Wilmington Messenger. A North Carolina newspaper named The News and Observer, which is still in print today, began printing cartoons that depicted black men preying on white women, basically drawing black men like they were the boogeymen. Alexander Manley started a newspaper in Wilmington called The Daily Record. Alexander Manley was black. Well, he was at least part black. They said a lot of people said that he was more white. He was very Mm light-skinned for a black man. Yeah. Um, But he started this newspaper, The Daily Record. At first, it was only weekly, but it became increasingly popular, and then he started publishing daily. And it was the only daily black paper in the country. Both white and black businesses would advertise in the paper, and Alex Manley had good relationships with people of both races in the community. Hmm. When Rebecca Latimer Felton's article about women women being raped by black men was printed, Alex Manley became extremely upset and decided to write his own article. In his newspaper, Alex Manley wrote an editorial where he said that white women were voluntarily and enthusiastically having romantic affairs with black men and wrote, many black men are sufficiently attractive for white girls of culture and refinement to fall in love with them, as is very well known to all. (laughs) Manley also wrote that white men had been sexual predators to black women both before and after the Civil War. He noted that many black men were actually mixed race, like himself, because white men had raped their mothers, grandmothers, Mm -hmm. etc., etc. Well, while it may be true, and very, very true. Mm-hmm. The white women were consensually and enthusiastically, which I believe, getting relationships with black men. To have that printed in the paper at the time, mm-hmm. like, started mayhem. Yeah, absolutely. Absolute mayhem. Yeah. Like, because they were seen as, by many, yeah. that there was no way a, a white woman who would our, our voluntarily... Pure, yeah, our pure white women would never disgrace uh, themselves. Yeah. Which is a lot of hooey. Yeah. Bullshit. So, Manley's article threw the white population of Wilmington into hysteria. Several newspapers reprinted the editorial with the headline, A Horrid Slander. Many white men felt that Manley had verbally attacked and slandered their white women. <laughs> Alexander Manley... Like, that's so outrageous. How, how... How dare these women think... Normal thoughts about these other people. Like, well, that's oh the, well, that, and I think like, that's part just, of it too. It's also like, sexist to yeah. think that women can't, like, you know, choose who they want to be with or, yeah. like, you know. Well, they thought of women pretty much like they thought of slaves. Right, yeah. Which is, ah, it's crazy. Blows my mind. It's, yeah, it's just so many different, it's so many layers and levels of messed up. Yeah, biases. Yeah. 
So Alexander Manley had to eventually hire bodyguards that were with him constantly in order to protect him. Nice. The owner of the building where Manley printed his newspaper was afraid that the building would be burned down, so he asked Manley to leave, and Manley had to start printing his paper in another building that was on the outskirts of town. Manley's editorial was printed just before the elections of 1898, and the Democratic Party used Manley as an example of the evil, quote, Negro rule unquote, that would destroy white people's way of life if they continued to vote in, vote in black leaders. Hmm. Not everybody in this time, so this is the very late 1800s, and not everybody could read. Right. So the News and Observer and other Democratic newspapers would print large political cartoons that were disgustingly and overtly racist, but would allow for non-readers to very much get the point that they were trying to make. Yeah. November 8th was election day in 1898. Alfred M. Waddell, a leader of the white government union, spoke at a rally right before the election and said, Negro office holding ought... That's very confusing. Not well written. That's his speech. Negro office holding ought at once and forever to be brought to an end. We will not live under these intolerable conditions. No society can stand it. We intend to change it, even if we have to choke the current of the Cape Fear with carcasses. That is like... So the Cape... I've I've reread this a couple times before reading it out loud. That doesn't even make sense. Yeah. So the Cape Fear is the river that is right there in Wilmington. Mm -hmm. And so basically he's saying, we need to vote in Democrats because Democrats are white, even if we have to start throwing bodies into the river. Wow. Redshirt militia members were placed at every polling station and both blocked and attacked any black resident that tried to vote. The Democrats won every single seat that they had a candidate up for. Hmm. Black residents tried to take solace in the fact that the Wilmington mayor and board of aldermen, whose seats weren't up for re-election, were Republican, and that black residents still had a lot of economic power and influence in Wilmington. The day after the election, a committee of 25 white men led by Alfred M. Waddell came together and signed a document called the White Declaration of Independence. Hmm. You can't just put white in front of everything. But they love to. (laughs) I guess that's their creative, the extent of their creativity. Yeah. It just also like makes me think of everybody, like those people that are like, we're going to have our own straight parade, like our straight pride parade. I'm like, guys. Yeah. Um, so the declaration contained a series of resolutions that demanded that Alex Manley had to stop printing his paper and and leave the city of Wilmington within the next 24 hours. The board of aldermen and the mayor had to resign and that we will no longer be ruled and never again be ruled by men of African origin. The committee sent their declaration to a group of prominent black leaders in the committee that the group of white men dubbed the Committee of Colored Citizens. Hmm. So the Committee of Colored Citizens were handpicked by the white Democrats, not the black community, um, but they responded to the declaration by saying, we don't have the authority to make these things happen. Like, you literally created this Committee of Colored Citizens for us. Mm -hmm. Like, we're not a committee. We don't rule over... Anything. Anything. Like... We don't, we can't. We have no authority. We have no authority. However, in the interest of peace, we will encourage these things to happen. And that's how they responded. 
Waddell was given the response on the morning of November 10th. Waddell met with a large group of white men at the Wilmington Light Infantry Armory to discuss the Committee of Colored Citizens' response, where Waddell decided to not share that the committee had responded. He just let the group of white men that was growing larger and larger by the minute believe that the black citizens had chosen not to respond at all. Many of the white men were armed, and things were getting very tense. Waddell had been a Confederate officer and used that previous knowledge to line up the group of men into skirmish lines. He marched the men up the street to Manley's printing press. The men knocked on the door of the printing press and nobody answered. Luckily, Manley had been warned that he was wanted out of town and had already escaped from Wilmington. The group broke into the building, found some gas and some kerosene, and set the building on fire. The African-American Fire Department arrived to put the fire out, but what was now a mob wouldn't let them even get close to the building until it was already mostly burned down. The mob took a picture of them all standing in front of the burning building. The building and everything inside it was destroyed. With the daily record gone, the only large county newspaper left was the Star News, which was owned by a former Confederate and now a leader of the white government union. So not only did they burn down, like, the only black newspaper, they basically got rid of this guy's competition. Right. In 1895, the North Carolina legislature passed a statute that enabled citizens to petition a superior court to appoint people to elected boards if there was a certain number of signatures on the petition. Hmm. So in 19, so in 1898, the new ha- the new Hanover County Commissioners was two Republicans, a Populist, and two Democrats. Since the Populist and Republicans held a majority over the Democrats, the Democrats could not enable the county militia. So William Barry McCoy created a petition that asked a Superior Court judge to appoint two Democrats to the new Hanover County Commission, and the mob passed around the petition to gather signatures. Almost 300 people signed the petition. The Superior Court judge approved it, and there was now four Democrats, two Republicans, and a Populist on the County Commission. With a Democratic majority, they were able to call up the Wilmington Light Infantry Militia. The mob was now the county militia and went to the armory and started passing out guns. 200 armed men marched into City Hall and demanded the resignation of the Board of Aldermen. The law was that if a member of the Board of Aldermen resigned, the rest of the board could designate a replacement. So one by one, the legally elected African-American Board of Aldermen members resigned and they were replaced with men that Alfred M. Waddell had handpicked. So, one by one, legally elected African-American board members resigned. The replacements were handpicked by Alfred M. Waddell. They then demanded the resignation of the mayor, and the new board of aldermen replaced that mayor with Alfred M. Waddell. So now Waddell is now the mayor of Wilmington. All without an election. That's crazy. Just at gunpoint. Yeah, duress. The mob, which was close to 2,000 armed white men now, is just constantly growing. Growing, yeah. They then left City Hall and started shooting at any black citizens that they saw on the street. They just took over the the government. local government. Yeah. They have complete power. Yeah. And they are now drunk on power, and now they are literally shooting. shooting at any black person they see. Jeez. The mob then got a wagon with a Gatling gun on the back of it and started mowing down black residents. Jesus. Yeah. It was like complete carnage. Yeah. 
Some of the bodies were loaded onto carts and thrown into the Cape River, just like Waddell had said in his speech before. Black residents fled their homes and businesses and hid in the wooded marsh and cemeteries. A group of armed white ministers went to a black church and waited outside for the black reverend to come outside so they could shoot him down. Like, these are these are supposed ministers. to be men yeah. of God. Yeah. Religious folk. Yeah. And they went to go kill a black minister. Luckily, the reverend was warned, and he was able to escape and hide in the cemetery with his wife. We don't know how many people died that day. Yeah. Because, like, all of base, there was no accurate records. Yeah. This... Not, the North Carolina's official report says the estimate is about 60 people Dead. were murdered. Wow. But it's believed that the number is probably closer to over 100. Yeah. Black residents stayed in hiding for weeks. It wasn't just like a day thing. Like, they stayed yeah. it in the woods for weeks. Some of them would sneak out at night to go get food and bring it back to the rest of the group that was still in hiding. Those with property that returned to their homes would be visited by the red shirt militia that were also accompanied by a judge. And they were told if they didn't leave Wilmington, they would be either arrested or lynched. Thousands of black residents got on trains and fled Wilmington as refugees, never to return. The Democratic Party printed pamphlets celebrating their glorious victory. Newspapers wrote about the event, but depicted black Americans as the instigators and white people as just defending themselves. The African-American population in Wilmington had been cut in half, and Wilmington now had a majority white population. The Democrats now had a stronghold on Wilmington politics, and thus North Carolina politics, and were overwhelmingly re-elected in later elections, which made this the only successful coup d'etat in the history of the United States. They took over a government in the United States by gunpoint. Mm -hmm. Neither the state of North Carolina or the federal government did anything to intervene or to persecute, at the very least, the leaders of the coup d'etat or compensate the victims that had now become refugees and had family members gunned down in the streets. They knew it happened, even if they didn't know it was happening at the time. They turned. A, they, they turned, found out they turned, about it later. They turned a blind eye to it, and later. they decided to just let it go. Wow! Like that blows blows your mind after an entire war was fought. Yeah, and it just like it's like what 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 is the meaning? Like why do we even vote if it doesn't mean anything? Mean anything? Right. So after that, the Democratic Party almost immediately put into um, law segregation acts. And Jim Crow laws. Hmm. It would be 90 years after the massacre at Wilmington until North Carolina would elect its next black Congress member, who was Eva Clayton. 90 years. Many of Wilmington's public buildings and areas today, like elementary schools and parks, are named after the Wilmington riot perpetrators. Really? Yeah. Most of the things in Wilmington are named after... Waddell. Not, not not necessarily Waddell, but a lot of the other guys that were part yeah. of it. Wow. Where the Daily Record stood is still an empty lot in Wilmington today. We know that the North Carolina Democratic Party voted to create the white government union in 1897, but there is no record that the North Carolina Democratic Party ever voted to abolish the union. We assume that it's not a thing anymore. Yeah. But there's literally no record that it's been abolished. Yeah. And it could still be... Technically. Alive and well today, just having secret meetings. Hmm. We don't know. So, 
That was kind of a fast, short episode, but That's crazy. Just, you know, there's there's one thing that just grinds my gears, and makes me mad. That's bias. Yeah. Racism, sexism, whatever else you want to call it, whatever many other types of biases there are. Just the fact. I mean, and it was because they just couldn't stand that they lost. Right, and then they just had these like idea ideologies that. I think the thing I'm almost angriest about is that nobody else stepped in and just let it happen and just let it go. Yeah. It'd be like if some, like some white supremacist group just tried to take over, you know, pretty large local government. Yeah. Like. This, this was like, this was the largest city in North Carolina at the time. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's just insane. Like Boise, you know, comes under attack from some racist group. It was a it was a very it was a local genocide yeah. is what it was. Mm-hmm. And I just because, you know, it, all, it kind of happened all of a sudden too so that, you know, election day happens and then this is, you know, the 2 days after the election mm-hmm. and these many of these black residents had no idea that this like the, you know, they knew things were tense, but they didn't realize that the tensions were getting so high. And so they're just out in the street walking around and they just get mowed down by a Gatlin gun. Oh yeah, on a wagon. When they had no idea. It's just, it, it makes me very sad. And yeah. one of the things too, what I was surprised about is this episode was really hard to research for. Not just because it was really sad, but because there's not... A lot of There's not a lot of information about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll go through my sources. I only have a few. My sources were uh, Vox, when white supremacists overthrew a government, History.com's Emancipation Proclamation, and a documentary where I got most of my information, Wilmington on Fire. And a lot of that Wilmington on Fire information was uh, people whose grandparents were residents in Wilmington Wilmington when this happened. And it's just this information has been passed down to them and they've been able to keep the history alive within their families because, you know, once it happened, the white government that was put into place, they just said, oh, we protected ourselves and we were victorious. And, you know, so it's just crazy. But That's very crazy. uh, Yeah. So, I promise I like to try to, after every heavy episode that we do, make the next one a light one. So, I'm going to promise that the next episode is a little bit lighter in tone so that we're not all sad all the time, especially now that we're all home alone. (laughs) But I felt like this was an important story to tell, especially because it's not really being told. So, yeah, that's and that's the important part is just making those stories. No, that's the point of this podcast, yep. and, you know, we like to talk about all the crazy people and, you know, funny stories, too, but yeah. these ones are just just as important, just as important if yeah. not more important to tell. Yeah. So. Okay, so before we go, we have to answer the presidential quiz. The quiz question was, in case you forgot. I did. Was, who was our smallest president? Ooh, smallest president. Smallest president. What are we talking here? We are talking size, size, stature, weight, all of it. Small. Itty teeny guy became president. Who was it? 
No? Ter- um, you know what? We should, we do this, and I only have 45 <laughs> names to remember, and I should probably look at those names. It's President James Madison. He um, was 5 feet, 4 inches tall, and weighed about 100 pounds. What? Teeny tiny little guy. Yeah, he is. Little. Just want to stick him on your pocket. Yeah, and just put him on your shoulders when he's ready to make a speech. Yeah. So, congrats if you got it. If you didn't, that's okay too. That Maybe was you a two hard should one. look at a list of presidents so you can at least make a guess. <laughs> and send us your weird, wacky, funny presidential trivia if you have any. If you guys don't ever want to miss an episode, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review us so other people can find us. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We're even on TikTok a little bit now. I feel like a super old person being on there. Yeah. But we do we do post stuff on TikTok. Right. If you would like to support this podcast so we can continue making episodes, go to patreon.com and search for America the Bazaar. I'll also, I'll also post a link in the episode show notes. You can also go to americathebazaar.com to search for merchandise, look at show notes, look at the timeline that we've put together for these episodes, etc. Anything else I'm missing from my little spiel? Nope. Uh, It's been a while since you talked about what the different levels on Patreon are. Okay, so basically you... The bottom level is George George Washington's teeth, and that's just $1 a month, I believe, Mm -hmm. where you can just support us and just say, we like what you're doing and keep doing it. The next one is Abraham Lincoln's Top Hat, which is $5 a month, where you actually get access to private secret episodes that nobody else gets to listen to. And we'll also post on there, like, special um, merchandise that you guys will only have access to or discount codes, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. There's also another tier, which is Alexander Hamilton's Dueling. Dueling Pistols, where you also get a signed script from us of your choosing and a Christmas gift every year from us. So if that interests you at all, please go check that out. And until next time, stay stay weird, America. America.